HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get $10. Bucks. <laughs> This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan with John coming to you from Murray Hill and Nastasi coming to you from Stanford, Connecticut and Matt coming to you from the booth in Brooklyn, but God knows where in Brooklyn because it ain't at Roberta's. How you guys doing? Good. Doing yeah. great. Yeah. Doing good. So, uh, Stas, how are you liking your, uh, you your Stanford-only life now? It's fine. Yeah? You don't have your air conditioner installed in your house yet? I don't have an air conditioner, no. Uh, did you have central air in your New York apartment? Uh, I had air, con- I had like the, they were part of the apartment, yeah. You know, I have but an air I conditioner in Connecticut on. you could borrow if you really need one. I don't, I don't like air conditioners, but thank you. Wait, you come from Los Angeles and you don't like air conditioners? We never use the air conditioner in LA either. Oh my God. Are you one of those, like, like why? I don't know. Power? Um, pa- what do you mean power? Like the power over your body to be uncomfortable? Like No, like, like electricity, um, you know, money spent on electricity. But like, okay. Huh. But you, you, you didn't say you were worried about the money. You said you don't like air conditioning. Yeah, well, I learned not to like it. I've never, like, we've never used it. I've never used it in New York. Like, I've been in cars with you in the summertime, and you definitely use air conditioners when you're in the car. No, I don't. What? I put the windows down. How do you forget that? It's, like, one of your biggest pet peeves. Let me tell you something about air conditioning. He's he's blocked it. I I tell you, yeah. Like, Like, there are whole sections of this country that are completely unlivable without air conditioning. For instance, mm-hmm. Arizona, like you wonder why you wonder why so many people got shot in the old west. It's because they didn't have air conditioning. Have I talked about this on the air? Here's what here's what happened. You're in the old west. It's 118 or 120 degrees. It's just hot as anything. There is there, you can't spare the water to like just do evaporative cooling on yourself because water's in freaking short supply. You have like terrible coffee, you have whiskey, and you have 118 degree heat and you have dust, right? 
You're sitting there, someone comes into your saloon and they give you guff. The only thing you have the energy to do is to pick up a gun and shoot them in the face. That's it. That's why, that's why there were so many gunfights back then because like, what else are you gonna do? You're not gonna go outside and have a fist fight too hot. You ever- Unless you're wearing all that crap. All that leather, all the mm-hmm. leather and the big felt hat, which mm-hmm. you need for protection against the freaking cows and the freaking like, you know, Russian thistle tumbleweed garbages and freaking saguaro cactuses or cacti, whatever they're called. So you're wearing all of this freaking gear this giant protective hat that you need. Otherwise you're going to like light on fire because there ain't no sunscreen. Was it still that hot though with the ozone layer being different back then? Oh, it was hot, dude. First of all, like let's say it was one degree colder. Let's say it was 120 instead of 121. Like 120 degrees in Phoenix is, I don't care what people say about dry heat. It's a dry heat. It's a dry dry heat. I love it. Yeah, you step step inside of an oven. You're like, don't worry. It's an oven. It's a dry heat. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like like 120 is just not tenable. And this is my theory is this is why so many people got shot in the old West. Just, it's just, you have no energy to do anything else. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what would you, I mean, you'd probably shoot people right out here in the East, but it is true. Wait, that- Gabe, how was, you were in Connecticut in your house? Oh, no, wait, where where were you? No, Miley and Wiley. So, uh, you know, the family tested positive for the corona antibodies and Jen's sisters oh, have God. been, Jen's sisters have been quarantining. Oh, what, did you call yourself? Because that's what you always do to me during events. You like ring during no, events. And you're like, it's, eh. no, is it's it ridiculous that this person is. No, no, no. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, <laughs> For the like uh, Matt, you can't cut that out now. Now that we've addressed it, you can't like normally Matt would have the ability to cut oh, out. Oh no, it's yeah, 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 yeah. No, we've kind of been a warts and all operation for the past few months. <laughs> or as now. I like to call it, all warts. It's like uh, there's the Captain Crunch cereal that's all crunch berries. It goes on the cover, they go, Oops, all berries. Really they did it on purpose. Not a bad it, thing. Yeah. It wasn't a mistake though. Oops. Anyway. Oops. Uh so we're positive. Dax was not positive. I said this last week, he was one point shy of becoming positive on his antibody titer. And so his phrase, as I said, was, I got a 64 on a pass-fail test. So anyway, so he, but then he got a a swab test to show that he's not currently active. And so we've been quarantined for forever and Jen's sisters have been quarantined together for forever. And so we brought the two of us together as like separately quarantined and tested groups. Uh, And so it was nice. I didn't post anything from it because I didn't want to show non-distanced, uh, irresponsible media posting. But it was like super nice to be able to see like human beings again in a semi-normal uh, environment. And I'm see- sure people would want to know like what you and Wiley cook together since you're both, you know, yeah. clickbait for this type of thing. They ordered out. Click. We did. <laughs> yeah. We did. Yeah. That would be awesome. We ordered out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what, what, what do you imagine that we would order out? If we were going to order something out, what would it be? Hot oil pizza. What? What's hot oil I, pizza? I don't know, but I... I could use, what is hot oil right pizza? Now. I'm trying it's to like, figure it out. I'm going to develop this like recipe now. What, what the is hot it? oil that you love on pizza instead of sauce. Instead of sauce. Well, I mean, hey, 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 Stas. I, you just came up with a brilliant idea. You know how... Because you know that like... Uh, it already got, exists. What do you mean? I'm 
hot oil pizza is a thing here. It's called hot oil pizza? Yeah. I lived in, in Connecticut Stanford. for many, many years. I've never heard of it. Who in sells Stanford. hot oil pizza? Oh, in Stanford. In Stanford. Stanford is the – Stanford – for those of you that don't know, Stanford, Connecticut is like the first kind of big town as you leave New York going up the coast city, uh, going up the coast. I guess Rye, but come on, Stanford. It's bigger, a lot bigger than Rye. And it's the first one in Connecticut because it's a lot bigger than Greenwich. And so uh, it is the ugliest skyline of any city I have ever seen in my life. It has the ugliest architecture. Hartford? No, Stanford. Hartford is ugly. No, but ugly. don't you think Hartford Bridgeport. is pretty bad? Oh, Hartford Bridgeport. is terrible. Bridgeport is, is bad. Too. No, Bridgeport is great. Bridgeport has blight. What? But all those old factory buildings are fantastic buildings. Like the buildings themselves are awesome. It like it's been destroyed by years of neglect and punishment, um, and kind of you know lack of investment and all sorts of problems. Like you know like destroyed neighborhoods by putting highways through it and stuff. But the the actual bones of Bridgeport, the buildings themselves, are not horrible. Stanford is where like it's it's like you know how when you become a tattoo artist, like you find a really good friend to let to 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 let you do the first <laughs> tattoo because it's gonna suck. This is like where every architect goes and is like, you know, they just graduated from using like Duplo blocks. They went from like Legos to Duplos <laughs> because they're bigger. They can make bigger things with Duplos. And then they're like, OK, now you can build a freestanding structure in Stanford. And that's how ugly <laughs> the buildings are in Stanford. Stanford is the city that brought you such amazing things as, hey, it's the building we built upside down so that no floor gets light. Or, hey, listen, I, I... You, you know what I'm talking about, Matt, right? I do know I every time on the drive I'm just like what why why did they do why that? Why did they do that? Or they have a building where they're like, listen, we'll give you fifteen percent off the glass if the glass is so wavy and pillowed that this thing looks like the entire building is is pressurized by air from a distance because the glass is so crappy. You know what I mean? You know, like that I think it's that Elizabeth Arden building that has the black kind of mirrored glass that's just done so poorly that you you wish you could just take a wrecking ball to all those hideously ugly buildings. They have the most conspicuous crappy parking lot right next to the highway. I mean, like, there's nothing good about the architecture of Stanford. And I'm saying this not as a professional architecture critic, but just as someone who has to drive by it quite a lot. Now, where Nastasia lives in Stanford, quite nice. Mm-hmm. They should make a similar agreement with the graduates of the Wrecking Ball Academy, and they could have them do their first practice <laughs> Wrecking Ball. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, my dream would be to combine the smell—not of Elizabeth. I know Elizabeth is a, a city where people enjoy it, New Jersey, but the smell of the New Jersey Turnpike as you travel next to the Cogen and next to the um, uh, oil like refinery spots in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I want to combine that smell with the. 80s, 90s, early 2000s, urban architecture of Stanford right by I-95. If you could combine that into one thing, you'd get everyone's kind of conception of suburban nightmare. You know what I mean? Okay, what did you and Wiley cook? Yeah, yeah I forgot. That's what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, Nastasia's house in Stanford, quite nice. Quite nice. Mm-hmm. Nastasia, like, I, I like... If you stuck a lighthouse beacon on top of Nastasia's uh, lighthouse, she would be the William Defoe character from <laughs> the lighthouse. Like, 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 just kill your beans. Like that. She'd be like just sitting there doing that over and over again, which is weird because you wouldn't picture Nastasia living in a lighthouse because she hates things that are haunted. And I would guess that yeah. nine out of 10 lighthouses are haunted. 
Out well, I got over the haunting of this place and I was like, you know what? F it. Yeah. You need to move out. I'm going to be here for a while. Nastasi and I weren't like. Well, yeah. And now since you're going to be there for the rest of the life, you'll haunt it. Later. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, she has to murder the actual owners first so that she can then they'll haunt it first. And then when she dies, she can oh, haunt God. it. But yeah. Nastasia and, and I and a group of other people were looking into this lighthouse in Fairfield, <laughs> which is another place in Connecticut on the coast. And there's this. Tell jetty. what you did. What do you mean? What I do? We were gonna buy it, and yeah, then yeah. you were like, "Huh? It says that the <laughs> that the foghorn goes off every. I think it was like nine minutes or something." And you were like, "I wonder if I could tolerate that." So then, in the lab, you you set a foghorn alarm to go off every nine minutes, and <laughs> we were sitting in there, and we were like, "Nope, <laughs> no, nope. we shouldn't buy this." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was. That was a mistake because at my parents' place in Newport, when it's foggy, they it, that happens, and like you just you don't hear it. You see, no, but Matt, if it's on top of your head, I think it's different. Oh, yeah, oh, it's yeah, like yeah. wearing a foghorn <laughs> helmet. So what happened is they have all these lighthouses that are going up the coast, and they used to need lighthouse keepers. So this particular one actually they say is haunted because there was a lighthouse keeper. I forget when, maybe Nastasia remembers, early 1900s. And uh, there was the light keeper and the assistant lighthouse keeper, and there was this long jetty. And so the lighthouse keeper had to go back to land during this storm for oh, something. Yeah. The light, the, the the dinghy that that he was on founders, and he's in the water, and he's like, "Hey, yo!" Uh, well, let's say it was Nastasia. Yo, Nastasia, help me out! And Nastasia's like, "No, nah, I think I want to be lighthouse keeper." And that's it. And the guy drowned. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so then yeah. the guy who drowned apparently haunted the Fairfield Lighthouse. Anyway, the Fairfield Lighthouse is amazing. So imagine like it's a pile of rocks and a house built on a foundation of a pile of rocks with a full 360 view. And you're like half you're a mile. Water. You're yeah, in the yeah. water. You're half a mile down a jetty in the water. I mean, just amazing. But then it, it would have cost us a lot of money to fix it up and use it as like a multifamily like vacation place. And then, yeah, we looked it up. So they they mechanized all these lighthouses. So the light going off, that's not a problem. That's cool, right? It's just that every time, every time it, there's inclement weather, there's an automated foghorn like in your house. Me up. You're like, oh my God, thank God that's a me up. You know what I mean? And it's it's not often enough that you can tune it out. You know how like when your neighbor's like, yeah. mm, 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 so you're like, okay, fine. Mm, mm, I get it. You lock into the beat, but then the song changes and you get thrown out of the beat and you have to get relocked in. Well, the interval of a foghorn is exactly designed to not have you get into your chills, chill zone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You need to hot rod the, the foghorn. So it goes off on a more repetitive, like frequent basis. Yeah. Yeah. So be like the uns, uns. Yeah. Then you'd be like, all right, I, I'm like, you know. Chef John Paul is in the chat questioning whether this is actually a cooking show. Uh, uh, yeah. Wiley and you made anything, Dave? Okay, so I'll say this. So uh, Dax brought – so here's what we brought. I brought uh, – it was generously uh, sent to us a, a side of Aura King salmon. So, Oh, did they pay you to talk about this? No. Oh. You said, what did you eat? <laughs> You asked me what I ate. I asked you what you cooked. Wait, but because because it was cured and sliced and not cooked. Did you did you make it? Wiley, I gave it to Wiley. I described what I wanted to have happen. I don't okay. like to do things in other people's freaking kitchens unless they specifically ask me to. 
Wait, you so you said didn't cook what did you eat, and now you're saying I can't talk about it because you, like, what? Anyway, Aura King Simon, they gave us a side of that, and um, and Booker, of course, wanted that. So Wiley did the old school cure that we, like, learned from the Gohan Society back in the day, which is, like, way overly complicated. Like, whenever I do the salmon, it's just, like, a little bit of sugar, salt, and then I, like, put the, like, I take the skin off, obviously, and then I put, I take off the, you know, the, the, the blood lines and the, the dark brown fat part. But then um, I just wet a towel with a little bit of, like, water and, and vinegar and put it over the fish and let it sit for a while before I cook it. Wiley did the full-on Gohan Society where first it's a little sugar, then you wait, then it's a little salt, then you wait, then it's, like, the sport towel. By the way, sport towels are a thing. I don't think anyone... Like, no one can afford sport towels, but, like, every sushi person that we uh, dealt with back when we were doing the Gohan Society uh, stuff at the FCI, they were all about the sport towel, this incredibly expensive disposable towel that they would use for, like, all of the fish work. Amazing stuff. Anyway, so a sport towel with a little bit of uh, – vinegar with a little bit of uh, uh, soy and a tiny, tiny bit of sugar over the top and, like, let it it cure out and then – because I asked him, I was like, yo, Wiley, you got your Yanagi in Connecticut? Or he's like, I have a Yanagi in Connecticut because, of course, Wiley doesn't have just one Yanagi. And so then they sliced that up for uh, for Booker. And then he made uh, – what else did we have? Oh, I made some steaks. I bought a bunch of steaks and I did a pre-cook on them. So I, uh, because I'm lazy and stupid, I like – I don't advocate this, although I kind of do, is that if the backpack looks good that it comes in from the store, I'll literally just do my low temp uh, for insurance on the backpack. So, uh, you know, Wegmans was selling a like four, you know, choice ribeyes for like, like all in a big blister pack. You know, like, you know how pills come in a blister pack? Imagine steaks in a giant blister pack. You know what I'm talking about, Anastasia? It's mm-hmm. like four steaks like on a grid. So I was like, to hell with it. So I like – I folded the I, – like I took – when you're cooking low temp, one mistake that a lot of people make, right, is to let the meat like sit together so that water can't flow in between the individual pieces of meat. And this increases – so if you've therefore doubled the thickness of your steak, you've increased the amount of cooking time by a factor of four, Right. So you really want to make sure that water can get around all sides. So what I always do when I'm spacing stuff out is uh, I use a, a half Lexan, a tall half Lexan for most of my cooking, unless I'm doing a lot. It's a good size for circulators. It's a good size for um, you know the amount of wattage that a, a, a immersion circulator can put out. It's a good amount of water and it can cook a decent amount of food anyway. So uh, what I have is I have quarter sheet cooling racks. And the quarter sheet cooling racks have little feet on them. Can you picture that? Can you guys picture what I'm talking about? A cooling rack with the four little wire feet? Yeah. So what I do is, is I put those things back to back. So I put the feet against each other. And what that makes is like like a sandwich that's, I don't know, maybe three eighths of an inch um, big where water can get in between. And I put that in between all the pieces of meat. So that there's always that little bit of water flowing in between them so that they cook quickly. Anyway, so and then I put a cooling rack on the bottom so that water can get underneath it. And I put a cooling rack on top to keep everything sinking down. So for this, I did my cooking rack sandwich and then I folded the blister pack around it because there was just enough room in the blister pack to get it around without like hurting the steak. So I was able to cook the entire giant blister pack as one set of steaks. I did 55 for an hour. 
55 Celsius for an hour. And then I dropped it to 52 for four or five hours, pulled it, uh, let it sit for a couple minutes and then iced that sucker down and then brought it up and then Wiley just hit it real hard on the grill uh, outside. So that was our delicious salmon and that on the, on the Sunday night. And on the Saturday, Wiley was, uh, Wiley's been telling me he did some work for Breville, the, uh, the Breville people. And uh, he got paid in equipment. This is an interesting thing you can do, uh, chef people out there, is if you do work for some of these companies, like if you want their equipment, often they can give you more equipment than they can give you money if they pay you to do things. And so he did something where at least part of his remuneration was in equipment and they gave him their pizza oven. And the pizza oven, he made a whole bunch of pizza uh, in it. And I have to say that pizza oven makes delicious pizza. It's like... It, it, it uses 110, right? It uses 110 um, power, uh, regular, you know, regular plug. And, but it actually has a fairly high refresh rate. In other words, you can cook like, like pizza after pizza in it. And it, it gets like a sub two minute bake if you want it. It goes very, very high. The temperature goes very, very high. And it doesn't make a lot of smoke and it doesn't throw off a lot of heat. And the way they do that is they only allow you to cook a 12 inch uh, pizza and it's on a stone. It has three elements. And so you independently control the deck and the dome temperatures, right? And what happens is, is as you open it, it open, it looks like it's going to open like a toaster oven, but when it opens, the, the stone actually lowers and comes forward. You load the pizza on. And then when you close it, it crams the pizza up close to the dome again. So the actual area that it's heating is very, very small and very well insulated. And that's how they're able to get a good refresh rate and a very high temperature in a very small space. But I was shocked. He pumped like maybe 10, 11 pizzas, 12 pizzas out of that thing, kept it going. Not a lot of smoke, not a lot of heat. I was quite impressed. But, you know, it, unlike uh, those, the outdoor, the, it's a thousand bucks, first of all. It's kind of big. Imagine it's like slightly bigger than a microwave. So like, you know, I can never use it here because I don't have a plate. He keeps it in the basement when he's not using it. But like, I don't have a basement. But uh, if what you want to do is make indoor pizza, that sucker, that sucker makes indoor pizza. But you have to understand the limitations of it, which is you can't really cook anything else in it. Like you can't cook something high, like a steak or anything like that, like you can in the outdoor, what is it called? Uni, Una, whatever. I don't have one because I don't have an outdoor space now, but the $500 outdoor gas pizza oven. But for indoor electrical 110 stuff, I was quite impressed actually. You know what sucked? Their, their peel. The bread peel on that thing is the worst. And they spent a lot of money on it too because it's stainless steel, right? There's two things you want a bread peel, several things you want a bread peel to be, but among them, you want them to be relatively light and you want them to be stiff. This is both heavy and it goes when you pick it up. It does not feel sturdy at all, and yet it is extremely heavy. And Wiley tells me it also sticks like a mother. So the peel needs some work, but the oven itself, uh, I quite liked. So that's what we had. Oh, and Dax made uh, some uh, more, I ground some uh, warthog wheat for him, and he made some 100% um, warthog, which is a red wheat. Uh, bread, which was good. And also on Saturday, on the way up to Connecticut, I stopped by uh, the green market and bought another 50 pound sack of grain. This time I bought the, the one that Adam uh, was one of the ones Adam Leonti was talking about last week, which is Redeemer, which is one of his favorite wheats it had been out of stock. And I got a 50 pound sack of Redeemer. And Jen was like, Dave, what the hell? Our entire house is just sacks of wheat. Sweet everywhere. So now I just joke with her. I'm like, yo, Jen, I got to go out and get another 50-pound sack of wheat. Think about this. If you live in New York City and you don't have a basement 
or any closets that are, aren't already being used. Hey, guys, people who live in New York, is there any extra space in your closet? Absolutely not. No. no. There's no extra space for 50 pounds of wheat. Top to bottom. I sort of like shove the door closed whenever I'm done with the yeah, closet. Yeah. And so the other problem with wheat is – did I already talk about this last week when we were talking about it? When, when I had uh, – at one point I bought like a 50-pound sack of rye from a, a supplier in Brooklyn. This is like you know 20 years ago, uh, 18, 20 years, 20, 20 years ago. And – I didn't repackage the rye. Now, nowadays, prepper websites tell you all about what you're supposed to do is get like uh, plastic buckets with like gamut seals or some sort of really heavy airtight seal. Then you're supposed to stick your grain into mylar in like like mylar bags that are oxygen sealed. Then you seal, you throw in oxygen absorbers. And what the oxygen absorbers are fundamentally is iron filings. Those iron filings rust. And as they rust, they absorb the oxygen from the environment. And so it's an oxygen-free environment. And in an oxygen-free environment, um, bugs can't grow. If you don't do that and you just keep like a sack of rye around your house and you're not like full of insects, they grow weevils. And then weevils are all in your rye. Weevils are all over. Weevils everywhere. Nobody wants weevils everywhere. Um, now, uh, first of all, it's hard to get oxygen absorbers right now. Uh, because everyone's prepped themselves into oblivion. But second of all, I don't have room for giant buckets of stuff. So instead, I just vac bag down all the stuff, like vac it hard, uh, hoping. Now I know that oxygen will make it through the bag, and bugs can eventually grow again. But I'm hoping to kill all of anything that is like right there right now, and then I'm cycling them through the freezer. Uh, I'm cycling my bags through the freezer two pounds, uh, sorry, four and a half pounds at a time. So within a month or so I should have been able to freeze down all of my currently 120 pounds of grain that I have chilling in my house. But anyway, whatever. I have bread going right now. Anyway. Uh, all right. Oh, wait. Uh, Chef John Paul asks in the chat, do you like a pizza steel above a pizza stone? Okay. That's a good question. Um, I don't have that much experience with a, a pizza steel since – I'd already bought all of my gear by the time the modernist crew, uh, Chris Young, started talking about using steels uh, as a thing. So I don't have I don't have that much experience with one. Nastasia and I bought one at the Elder Street Lab, not for that, but for a different reason. And we promptly accidentally melted three quart containers onto it. And so then I was never able to adequately like I, I never took the time to adequately burn off all of the plastic that was on our steel. And then when we moved, uh, I think it got pitched, right, Stas? Didn't that thing yeah. get pitched? Yeah, yeah, got pitched when we left. And so I've never had adequate uh, experience with uh, the steel. I get the theory of it. My problem with all of these things is their refresh rate, right? So that's why, like, when I was talking about the, um, the Breville pizza oven, the first thing I asked Wiley was, okay, so your first pizza cooks in 90 seconds. How long does your second pizza take? How long does your third pizza take? How long does your fifth pizza take? Any sort of storage medium for your oven, whether this be a pizza stone or a steel, is limited by how fast you can dump the energy into it because they're all energy storage devices. Now, the nice thing about a steel, um, the bigger the mass, obviously, the better, is that um, it loads up faster and can dump energy faster than a stone can. Um, so I get the theory of it. I just don't have enough experience with it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. So I recently received my France box, and uh, one of the first things that popped out were uh, Rancho Gordo beans that they called cassoulet beans. Now, everybody pretty much loves cassoulet. Stas, you like cassoulet? Yeah. Yeah, everybody loves it. But here in quarantine time, uh, I don't really have uh, a bunch of duck lying around. You can't really have a real cassoulet without duck. So I just kind of made something similar, i.e. something meaty and beany. So what I did with them was, uh, first, I just, in my house all the time, I have a whole bunch of reduced tomatoes. So I just buy the canned tomato, uh, the canned tomatoes. You, I blend them with a whole onion and with a bunch of garlic, and then I put it on an induction and reduce it by half so that I have this kind of like, it's not tomato paste, it's like this kind of like thick kind of reduced tomato that I have lying around. Now don't add those to the beans right away because you never want to cook beans with acid. Instead, I took more garlic, onion, sauteed it down, uh, threw the beans into my rice cooker with that, chicken stock, and I hit that with some of the uh, some of the burlap and barrel flouring hiss-up thyme that came into in with it, and also, sorry Stas, I added a little rosemary, I know you hate that, I apologize. And then I threw in, because I don't have standard kind of cassoulet meat ingredients, I threw in two ham hocks and a bunch of sausage that I had, you know, different varieties, some hot, some not. I hacked them up into pieces, threw them in, and just let that whole thing cook up. Once it was cooked out and like, you know, and the, the sauce was reduced down to just where I wanted it, I threw in the uh, tomato reduction, folded that in, and then breadcrumbed it and just glazed the top of it to get the breadcrumbs out and served it on out. So it's not cassoulet by any stretch, but dang, was it delicious. Go to bendetable.com to start your monthly subscription. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bendetable will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN, which stands for Heritage Radio Network's programming. By the way, uh, I don't want to forget this one. Ashley Bronstein writes in, by the way, why is it that people's names are spelled Stein but pronounced Steen? Where does that come from? I'm assuming it's Bronstein and not Bronstein. Germany is where. No, but in Germany, E I N is Stein. Yes. Oh, okay. Sorry, you're saying the opposite. But in America, I would bet that like well over half of people whose names are spelled Stein are pronounced Stein. No, like Victor Frankenstein from uh, Nastasia's favorite movie, Young Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't what? know. Interesting. Well, how did that happen? Where did that come from? I don't know. None of us are etymologists, so you're asking. But is that is that in America only, or is that worldwide? I don't know, Dave. God, what the heck use are you people? You lived in Italy. I think we're... You live in you lived in Belgium, didn't you? What the hell? I lived in France. They're not really pronouncing anything, anything. those things that way. All right, all right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Ashley uh, writes in. Uh, my boyfriend Jacob is a big fan of your podcast. His birthday is on Saturday, May thirtieth. Would you mind giving him a shout out? Shout out to Jacob! Happy birthday! How's that? Was that a good shout out? <laughs> no. uh, that was great. <laughs> what did you no, say, Stas? You cried? Did what? you say I cried? No, I didn't. I said no. Oh. I thought you said I cried. <laughs> this reminds me, my uh, Gerard, my they so my stepfather Gerard. So I'm, while I'm not by blood, like you know, you know, grew up with him. You know, as you know, part of my life, he 
his Italian family in Boston is the source of like many, many uh, hilarious stories in my life. So one of them was his, his sister had gone to a, uh, a mafia, like a funeral of a, of a, a daughter. So his sister was friends with a, a mafia Don's daughter because they just happened to, you know, go to the same school and they're friends. And so she died at a very young age. And so this, this, this goon that I'm about to describe to you reminds me of Nastasia. So like, like the, the Gerard and the sister, my stepfather Gerard and, this, and his sister, Auntie Linda, go up to this goon at the funeral and they're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Oh my, they're so sad because this, you know, this young woman has, has died. And the goon goes, yeah, real sad. Wow. And that reminds me of Nastasia. <laughs> and then there was another story where at the same funeral, I believe, someone on, on, the, uh, on the outside, another goon, was handing out Kleenexes to peep tissues as people walked in. And they go, it's going to be real sad. You're going to cry. And handed out the tissues to people. How crazy is that? Wow. That's you want, good. That, you like want that. that at your funerals, Dust? People yeah. forcing you to cry? Yes. It's going to be real sad. <laughs> You're going to cry. Nobody's going to cry at my funeral. Oh, no, I feel no, I'm not for sad. you. I'm not, I'm not sad about it. Don't cry for you, Argentina. You're supposed no. to be immortal. That's all you wanted. Not much to ask yes. for. Did and you see that, that Jimmy Fallon has been canceled what do you mean canceled canceled apparently, like he did something terrible or canceled like the show canceled? listen apparently in 2000 he did blackface on snl and it's just coming out now okay is this one of those things like chris cuomo where you're gonna have to dial this way back no <laughs> no <laughs> i mean he has not been canceled but he is uh it's like there's a hashtag i don't know what it is right now but, i have no um, I, I i don't know i have i, I have no data on this I, it I is no true that he did blackface on SNL in the year 2000. Oh my God. Bringing up a good old Conan thing, huh? I didn't know you were a Conan <laughs> fan. Dave, we've sang this song together. Uh, yeah, it's true. Do it. John, do you even know what we're talking about? Are you too young to know about this? No. Matt, do you know this? Uh, my, it's like in the year 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. Yes, yes. Yeah. And well, and what was it? The trumpet player who used to sing it? There was this big trumpet guy yeah. and he used this super high falsetto. Yeah. And I can't even, I can't, my voice is a little gravel, scratchy today or I would do that. But like in my head, I can hear it. And then they, they would just like read off these things like in the year 2000. And then they would say something dumb, like some dumb thing. Cause it was before Conan. Anyway, interesting. You bring up Conan <laughs> and interesting. You bring up horribly racist things because I saw uh, the doc. Here's the segue. Yeah, yeah, I saw I saw the documentary <laughs> on the Dana Carvey show, which was kind of like an amazing documentary of the show that Dana Carvey did after he left Saturday Night Live in 1997, and like the the team on it is like here's who was here's who the, was the team. It was Smigel, who's back, you know, does TV Funhouse for uh, Saturday Night Live, right? So Smigel was, I guess, a showrunner. Dana Carvey was, you know, the the headline guy. And they were going to have it be, it was a sketch comedy show. So Nastasia would have enjoyed it. The, the writers were Louis C.K. And he also acted on it, right? Uh, Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, who I did not know were like friends who came up at Second City together. And uh, who else? Some other famous, so there's some other famous people that were on it, but it was kind of this who's who of people that became incredibly kind of famous and well-known. But the sketches, they had so 
much like weird like racism in them. It's crazy. It's, it's go back to see what was considered funny by people that we still consider to be funny people, even in the late 90s, was just crazy, crazy bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway. In the year 2000. All right. Uh, from a user in the Zoom demo chat room. That's, that's very personal. A user. It, many users. Um, Yes, many, many questions about it. Okay. Uh, Dave and Nastasia mentioned that refurbished spinzols might be available soon. Any updates on this? I have decided to not sell refurbished spinzols. It's just too much of a heartache. And the amount of money that you would save by buying the refurbished spinzols. First of all, there's not that many of them. And then, like, I am just loath to sell them to someone who I don't have direct daily contact with. I will tell you this, though. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, one thing that has come of this kind of uh, corona thing is that we've started, John has started doing, um, what's it called? Uh, what's the word? I'm on? FaceTime. Yeah, face, FaceTime uh, meetings live. So we do now video troubleshooting if you're having a technical issue with your Spinzol. So it is a really good time from a customer service standpoint to buy one. And I'll also say this, John, for those of you that don't know the history of John, John is a professional, uh, you know, one of the things he does is professional line cook. So he knows what your problems are, people. He can help you out. Um, so anyway, yes. we decided to not, to not do it. It's just too much. Imagine, Stas, if, I, if we then had to provide customer service on top of something that was fundamentally a break-even situation, it would, be, it would be a nightmare, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although people are probably excited to get these Zoom things. They may just break their spins all to get that. Now, you see what I mean, Stas? This is how much you hate human beings. This is how much you hate people. This is how much I know about human beings. God. God. Yes. Jeez. I mean, I know if I didn't have a weekly meeting with you guys, I'd be breaking my <laughs> You are an outlier, Matt. You, you are not of the masses. Jeez <laughs> oh, Louise. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, from Elvin Young, this is a question that we haven't gotten to in a while. I frequently use the cocktail calculus chapter of the book as a reference for sugar acid and ABV balancing. That is alcohol by volume balancing. I wonder why it is that Americans use alcohol by volume, whereas other countries use alcohol. Some other countries use alcohol by weight. I wonder why. I wonder how that happened. Anyway, but I'm curious if there's anything I need to consider for drinks uh, like A, stir drinks with clarified juice and cordials or B, lower AB, ABV drinks. I'm curious if these drinks tend to go above the typical acid percentage range for stirred, stirred drinks. Wait, so the, what's the question here, John? Lower ABV drinks, do they have more acid than higher ABV drinks? I think so. Yeah. I'm curious if it makes sense to build a yeah. drink with the same overall volume, sugar, and acid proportions, but just adjusting down the ABV by swapping out part of the base spirit with a fortified wine. I'm experimenting with different configurations, but not seeing particular patterns. All right, listen. Elvin. I'm going to tell you this, uh, and I've said this on the air, but I'm going to say it again. Buy glycerin. And no, I don't mean mono and diglycerides, which for some reason, the freaking Ferran Adria Texturas group decided to call like their freaking mono and diglyceride flakes like Glisse, and some people call it glycerin. It is not. Listen, I'm going to say this because I had a Twitter uh, uh, thing with someone. Mono and diglycerol, so glycerol, which is what we generally refer to as glycerin, specifically ve vegetable glycerin, is a slightly sweet, extremely thick liquid, okay? 
glycerin. The glycerol molecule is the backbone of it's the it's the polar backbone of all uh, fats and fatty acids. Okay, so a fat is a triglyceride. So that is three fatty acids on a glycerol backbone. So if you look at pictures of molecules of fat, it's like three fingers coming off of a backbone, and that's what a fat is. You knock one of those fatty acid chains off, and you have a diglyceride. Now the the fatty acid part is nonpolar, right? So that that is like what is attracted to non-water, right? And then the glycerol part, that part that doesn't have the fatty acid, that part is uh, polar, and so that gives it emulsification. Knock off a second one, and you have a monoglyceride. So the the flakes, the, the, the solid things, are mono and diglycerides, kind of a shotgun mix of those things, usually somewhat titrated to be able to use uh, properly for thickening oils or for uh, emulsifying, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the glycerin, the liquid, is what you want to buy. Buy vegetable glycerin. They do taste differently supplier to supplier, but just test them. Uh, and you're only using them in very small percentages. You're talking like five grams to the liter or, you know, maximum, maximum 10 grams to the liter. But you really wouldn't want to add that much, more like five grams to the liter. And what happens is, is that as you lower the alcohol percentage of uh, a drink, uh, a cocktail, right, you are – as soon as the alcohol drops below a certain threshold, and it's usually somewhere like 12, 12, 13% alcohol. As soon as you go below that threshold, you'll notice that in order to get the flavor and the body and the mouthfeel where you want it, you start increasing the sugar. And therefore, as you increase the sugar, you start increasing the, the acid and it becomes sweeter and sweeter. And when you get down to like where soda is at 0% uh, alcohol, um, you're at like 10% sugar, which is a lot. It's quite sweet. Um, so what you can do when you're lowering uh, the alcohol level is to introduce some glycerin. And that, for whatever reason, and it's poorly understood, uh, as far as I can tell, and I've read the scientific literature, I haven't read it in over a year, but the last time I read it, it was poorly understood exactly how it works. But uh, as you add some glycerin, when you reduce alcohol all the way down to zero, you um, bring back the like the kind of taste perception that the sugar and the acid had. In other words, if you just take if you just take something that's at five or six percent sugar, zero percent alcohol, and you taste it, it just tastes like I watered down your lemonade, right? It just tastes like the hell are you doing? You watered down my lemonade, jerk, cheapskate, right? You add uh, some glycerin to it. And now it gets back closer to the mouthfeel, viscosity, and balance that a cocktail at those ratios would have. So I would look into doing that as a test. In general, as you lower alcohol, you'll need to increase those other flavors. And I think it's probably for a fairly poorly understood reason. Uh, is that, does that answer that question, uh, guys, or no? Yep. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, okay. See if we have it. Okay. Uh, Danny Chisholm, via email, does the Spinzol clarify butter perfectly? I don't know. John, you going to try that for me? Yeah, why right, not? Try it for me, report back. I can do that. Listen, when you clarify butter, I mean, first of all, like, what are we talking about clarify perfectly? Like, what are we doing here? Like, are you talking like one or two sticks? I don't know how well the butter solids are going to stick to the inside of the rotor because there's just not that much of it, right? Like, in general... Butter solids will compact into a puck, 
but I don't know how much of them you'd need to effectively stick to the side of the rotor. If you were going to, and there's also the foam that comes up to the top. If you melt the stuff, let the foam settle out, right? The water and the, any residual water in the melted butter and the butter fat solids will go to the inside of the rotor and you will be able to get the, the clarified butter out of the top. And if you were doing like, oh, I don't know, like liters of it, then yeah, I'm sure it could clarify it very, very quickly, right? It'd be a pain in the patoot to clean that, I mean, you dishwash it, but like imagine that butter film all over the inside of your spins all, Nastasia. What do you think about that? But, um, yeah, uh, uh, but um, it would work, right? But then the question I have is that last 500 milliliters uh, which is 500 milliliters is roughly a pound of butter, right? That last pound of butter, um, would it, when you stop the rotor and pour it out, would the butter solid stick to the inside of the rotor or not? And if there was still liquid water, right? It's very hard to do liquid, li liquid separations, liquid, liquid separations, unless you just force the liquid out. So what you could do, uh, and John, you could do, you could add hot water to it and push the butter out. That would work. But then you'd have to know, I mean, you'd have to do a couple of calculations, but yeah, you could, I know it would work. I mean, John, you could try doing a couple sticks, seeing whether it pours right, but unless you bore, boil off all the water, you're going to need to do a, a hot water push to push the other stuff off the top. Does that make sense, John? Does that make sense to anyone but me? Yeah. 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 I don't know. That makes sense. It's like the, the herb oil infusion recipe that you have in the spins all menu. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you think about it, like liquid, liquid is the toughest. Oh my God. You know what? I got the knockoff Sirzol on Friday or Saturday. Did it flake dandruff into your food? I haven't used it yet because it made me so angry how it's our box, our direction. The directions are, are, I mean, the manual is printed on, you know, eight and a half by 11, and our manual is not. It's not folded correctly. It's not in the bag. It's all these things. And, but it's insane because it's our logo. It's exactly the same. Well, we know for a fact exactly who's doing it. We know yes, exactly we do. who's doing it yes, because because they made a prototype for us once when you know we tried to switch, and in fact, it threw off. And we are yeah. suing the S H I T off of them because we are. Yes, I thought our lawyer. Our, we, so if you're listening now, we're suing you. I mean, like it's like. I work with an idiot. Who, me? I'm like, here's the thing. Why is it that, but like, I, like, <laughs> look, these people should be thrown off of a cliff. It's like, they didn't just knock off the idea. Like, like, what, like, what is that? Yeah. What is that? What is the, the shape, other one called? The shape isn't different. I don't remember, but yeah. I, yeah. I but they, it's like, it's like, I remember once I spoke to, uh, I, you know, uh, like Jen, my wife, Jen, um, did a bunch of work and was friends with one of the, you know, partners of Kate Spade before Kate Spade got sold to Neiman Marcus. And I once asked her, I was like, yo, how does it make you feel when you see these, like all these knockoffs down on Canal Street? And she's like, I hate it. I want to kill them. You know what I mean? And now I kind of know what it, what, it, what it feels like. You know what I mean? Because like. Well, I think one way to make it even worse for, for us in a sense is that they, you know, like it was direct your customer service emails to us. Yeah. So it's just like a waste of my time and our time of doing all this for a completely bootleg product. Well, that's yeah. how we found out is that like, you yeah. know, a, a customer 
asked John about this thing throwing off flakes. And I was like, throwing off flakes? The only flakes I've ever seen thrown off was that bootleg, like, proto, that company who was trying to make them instead of the company that we actually get to make them sent us one. And I was like, your product sucks. It throws flakes off and we never used them. And that's when it's, that's when it struck, I guess, John or Nastasi. And they went back and found out that, that they weren't buying it from a person who had the, the right to sell them. You know, it was like, because he, 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 little hint, we make them all. So like, there's no other seller other than the ones that we know we've sold to. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, man, man, that yeah. burns. Huh. Mm. Don't enjoy. Um, all right. Uh, let me see. Another, another, a lot of spins all questions. I guess because we did a Zoom seminar on spins alls. That's why I have so many spins all questions. Uh, hey crew, uh, thanks, uh, thanks to, to the whole team for an enjoyable and uh, informative seminar. I've been, we did it with Jack Schramm. Uh, uh, I've been using the Spinzol as a home enthusiast uh, since its launch with moderate success. I guess it's better than no success. Uh, with the knowledge I gleaned from the seminar, I'm confident that my success rate will improve. I'm now planning to buy a CO2 injection system. When I look up the blue carbonation cap, which is, I believe, called the Carbacap or something like that. It used to be called the Liquid Bread Corporation, but I think they changed their name. Liquid bread meaning beer. Uh, I read many recent negative reviews. Most of the complaints about the cap are the not fitting most PET bottles. Do you know if this is uh, if this is indeed the brand of cap you use? Your sage advice is much appreciated. Best regards, David Sprintis. Uh, okay, so the truth of the matter, uh, David, is that um, there are two, uh, there are two, may, maybe even three now, main styles of screw threads that are uh, made for uh, uh, soda bottles now, and they are somewhat interchangeable. And so the carbonator cap will in fact fit on both of them. However, my main problem with the new carbonator caps is that they tend to cross thread. So maybe what like people are talking about and you need to, on some of them, you need to cut off the bands, the, the white plastic uh, anti-tamper bands in order for them to set, uh, set properly. But I have, I have been able – for years, for a couple of years during this main switchover, I used to search around for the old-style bottles. And Vintage Seltzer, as the bastion of New York Seltzerdom, uh, was I think one of the last ones here to move over to the new style of bottles. So they used to have the taller, kind of more traditional, kind of more square. If you look at the old soda bottle caps, they're kind of more square, more, more top-hatty. And the newer ones are more kind of like a little shorter, a little more pork pie-like. Uh, if to use the hat analogy and um, but you can get them to seat on them. But I, the new carbonator caps, the new plastic ones, I just find to be unpleasant in terms of their ability to cross through, but they, they should work. Um, Evan uh, Flynn on Instagram says, I had a question. I was wondering if you could shed some light on. I wasn't sure who to ask. So I figured uh, that we'd be the most knowledgeable on the subject. I recently fat washed a bourbon with butter. Once completed, should I store it room temp or should it be in the fridge? I feel like normal room temp shouldn't be an issue, but because it was fat washed with a dairy product, now I'm not sure. Thanks so much. Uh, you and your bars are truly inspiring. Well, thank you so much, Evan. And you do not need to worry about it. It will not spoil. Um, even milk, if you add milk to uh, like liquor, as long as the alcohol level is high enough, you're not going to get spoilage. Uh, what you do need to worry about is that if there is residual fat, that fat can go rancid. And in fact, in general, what you need to worry about when fat washing is making sure that you don't use rancid fats or have residual fat in your product that can go rancid. 
So like some things that go rancid very easily are like uh, sunflower seed oil goes rancid very easily. Sesame seed oil goes rancid very <laughs> easily. Uh, if you whip a lot of air into butter or I keep it in the fridge, that. it can get a lot of rancidity <laughs> fairly quickly on the outside. So it's more rancidity you have to guard against. But once you've fat washed it and you've gotten all the fat out, you should be a good to go. Elliot Papineau wrote in, uh, oh, long, time, uh, long time listener of the show. Elliot writes in. And by the way, uh, uh, John, you pointed out uh, where he grows on the farm. Uh, why don't you, you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, no, I actually got to, Are when they, I went to Chicago to pick up the Ebony Test Kitchen, I got to go to okay. uh, this restaurant called The Loyalist, which is part of uh, this restaurant group called Smith and the Loyalist. It's run by John and yeah. Karen Shields. It's absolutely fantastic food. And Elliot grows all, of, yeah. or not all, but a lot of the produce for them on his place called the farm uh you should follow him on instagram i think it's at underscore the farm underscore yeah. something like that he's uh, now loyalist yeah. to who king, king like george the third i mean who, who are they loyal to i i don't know the I, it didn't occur to for me to ask I mean, that we one don't instead. cotton to loyalists true uh 10 minute warning right. 10 so uh nastasia does the as i've said the only now, Nastasia, you know what you've done, right? So Nastasia, for people who know, you know, who've listened to the show for a long time, everybody knows oh, that I love no, America. I, Nastasia does not. Okay. I made an American flag. Okay, so like whatever. Everybody knows it. It's just true. So like, but the the but Nastasia especially hates anything patriotic except yeah, fireworks and, yeah. as it turns out, red, white, and blue sprinkles. God. Right. Yeah. But so Nastasia sent Booker, and by the way, I have the I have the can, I have three cans of uh of tinned white anchovies for you. I haven't eaten one yet, I've saved them for you. And I told you I bought it for Booker and told him not to eat it without me so that I could see if they were good. And he was like and, and he just did it anyway. I was like, How did you like them? And this is classic Booker. He says, not as much. I was like, How did you like them? Not as much. A- as what? And what he means is, so any canned fish is rated against oil-packed, skinless, boneless sardines. So, like, basically, the height of tin seafood for Booker is skinless, boneless sardines packed in oil. And everything else is, I didn't like it as much, right? And so, oh, speaking of which, so anyway, I'll finish this. So, Nastasia drops off red, white, and blue uh, sprinkles, and Booker's like, I'm going to make her an American flag. He goes, no, she just likes the sprinkles. Yeah, but I don't remember a bean. Maybe it's an English. Is she English? Yeah. yeah. And then you burned it. Kitty. English? Kitty. Yeah. Her her love of the sprinkles overrides her hatred uh, for the United States. I know. States. She doesn't actually hate. I don't want to hear anything from people. I'm just ribbing her. I'm just ribbing her. Okay? <laughs> We're going down a really bad yeah, path. Yeah, yeah. So, wait. Here. So, speaking of tinned fish, uh, John, you're planning on something interesting with tinned fish, are you not? Yeah, I'm having a tin fish extravaganza on Wednesday night. I've been buying up this particular brand of tin fish that's supposed to be quite good from the Basque region in Spain called La Brujula, B-R-U-J-U-L-A. And I've got, you know, like 16 different tins of seafood and gonna have oh a my God. friend over who's been similarly quarantining um, and we're gonna taste them all and see what the verdict is. I'm looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question for the listeners out there or the, or the chat room, and I don't want to research this. I want someone else to answer my question for a change. In Willy Wonka, like the original, right? When Veruca Salt goes, I want a feast. 
I want a bean feast. What the heck is a bean feast? Does anyone know? Has anyone heard of this thing, the bean feast? You guys remember the song, right? I want it now. Yes. I want a feast. I want a bean feast. You know uh, a bean feast was an informal turn for a celebratory meal or party, especially an annual summer dinner given by an employer to his employer's employees. By who? By his or by an employer to his or her employees. So her we're talking employees. about Mr. Salt putting an extra one pound, uh, one pound uh, bonus in their pay bucket if they find the golden ticket for Veruca. Remember this? I have the entire movie memorized. It's kind of weird. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So, as Elliot asked, uh, I want to get a back chamber sealer for the farm. Well, we discussed the farm and loyalists, and that's how we got on to Nastasia's hatred of the country, but her love of sprinkles. Uh, what? I want to get a vac chamber sealer for the farm, and should I look at the PolyScience versus the VacMaster VP215 uh, or any other maker? Thanks for the help. Okay, so both the VacMaster VP215 and the PolyScience are in the $1,000 range. Uh, just, you know, as you know, anyone who knows me knows, like I'm a fan of Philip Preston uh, and PolyScience. I have used neither the VAC, I've not used any of the VacMaster products, nor have I used the PolyScience sealer. I will say this, the VacMaster, uh, the 215 has an oil pump in it and the PolyScience has a dry pump in it. Now, I don't, I couldn't find online the actual pump that the VacMaster has, right? But I will say that in general, um, oil pumps outperform dry pumps. They require some maintenance, right? But uh, oil pumps in general outperform dry pumps in general. Is it possible to get a dry pump that could, you know, like a, a, a monster dry pump that could outperform like a weak oil pump? Yes. Um, but in fact, the reason why most commercial, bigger commercial units cost so much money is they all have a pump made by the Bush Corporation, which is a German corporation. And those pumps are beasts. Those oil pumps are beasts. And so what a large pump gives you, right, the reason why you care about the pump isn't really the ultimate vacuum, although that's important. It's how fast it can achieve a vacuum. So like any vacuum machine that's worth its salt, i.e. anything with a pump that's a lot better than, let's say, a food saver, right, can probably achieve a low enough ultimate vacuum for you to get the sealing results that you want. The question is, how often do you need to do it? So a machine with a giant pump, like a hard pump, will be able to do like three, four times as fast, well, two, maybe three, maybe times fast a vacuum cycle to, to a given level of vacuum than a, uh, a smaller pump will. Likewise, uh, the bigger the pump, the bigger a chamber it can evacuate in a, in a particular length of time. So what you, one of the main issues in a vacuum machine is the size of the item that you can vacuum down. And so you really want to look at the chamber size and whether or not it is big enough to accomplish what you want. And the kind of weaker the pump, mm -hmm. right, the, um, the, the, the longer and longer it takes and the smaller and smaller a chamber needs to be. So to give you an idea, like most of the uh, oil pumps are a pain in the butt when you're running them for uh, rotary evaporation for distillation because they have to run for such a long time that they tend to volatilize uh, oil into the kitchen. Smell bad, right? Uh, and... Um, so when those things are running, there's a very big incentive to not have an oil-based pump. So they have dry pumps. Now, I have run oil-based, even just like $200 oil-based refrigeration pumps like the Robin Airs and whatnot. 
uh, on my uh, rotary evaporator and they are much faster and achieve a much lower vacuum. And those aren't even good. Those are nowhere near what like the bush pump in a commercial vacuum machine can do. And those blow below that, like the $900,000 dry vacuum pumps that they sell for rotary evaporation out of the water in terms of the speed and the ultimate uh, uh, vacuum they can achieve. So that's what you should look at. But I have not used either of them. And as I said, and, and John and I and Nastasia were talking about it, uh, I don't really know how it would work. I, I, I'm loath to recommend a piece of equipment unless I've used it, right? Or at least seen it used or put my hands on it. And I've used neither of these, but uh, I don't know how it would work because, but you know, we're open to doing equipment reviews, right guys? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, Devin weighed in in the chat. He had also not used this, but he said if Elliot wants to be the guinea pig, he could try the made, quote, made with meat brand vac chamber. Uh, it's the cheapest oil chamber vac other than weird eBay stuff. Seems to be from the same factory as VacMaster. No idea of quality, though. A few weeks ago, there was a 25% off coupon from them online, in addition to already being cheaper than the VacMaster and backpack kit from web restaurant store no affiliation but if you want to roll the dice please let us know how did you know that i'm made of meat we are yeah um so uh so philip preston i will tell you this story that he told me philip Mm -hmm. preston once bought a very cheap uh vacuum uh chamber vacuum online because he does that he'll he'll test other other pieces of equipment um, he bought one that was an oil-based pump, and then when he ran liquids in it and the, and the liquids vaporized inside of the chamber, like somehow it developed some sort of electrical short and made all this like crazy smoke inside of, inside, inside of, inside of the chamber. So if it's made by the same factory, I'm sure it's fine. But I will tell you this, when, uh, when a factory, when you go to a factory and they make something, Right. And then they no longer have the manufacturer who cares about quality riding them. Things slip. Just like the story I was telling you, this one company, we sent them, we sent them Searsalls to see whether they could make the Searsalls for us. And the ones that they made didn't reach our quality requirements. And so we didn't use them and they were cheaper. Right. But they didn't reach our quality. And now they are knocking us off. So just because something looks the same doesn't mean it's made to the same uh, specifications. And I, and I can say that like um, most factories don't use the equipment that they're making ever. Like they're not cooks. And so they wouldn't even know how to figure out whether something worked right if they wanted to. Would you say that's accurate, Saz? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, John Sconzo, longtime friend, friend of the show. Uh, you know him as Doc Scons, perhaps on the Instagram Hey, Dave, any special tricks to clarifying mango with a spinzol? You mean fresh or you mean uh, like in a Hustino? The issue with the Hustinos and mangoes no. is that no. they um, your yield can be reduced somewhat because dried mango is is quite dry, uh, depending. Like some, some of it's like shoe leather. I would let it sit for a lot longer. The problem with very dry mango is, is and I was talking about this in the, in the spinzol thing, is that they can form little hard blebs. And these little hard blebs are hard to put through the pump. They're very hard. So I would say blend it a lot. Um, sometimes we will add a little bit of fresh mango in with dried mango into the Ustino, and we're good to go. If you're talking about fresh mango, I've never had a problem with it. So let me know. It might be one of those things where you're better with uh, doing um, batch than doing uh, continuous. But uh, Doc Scons, let us know exactly what your problems are, and John will hook you right up. Uh, now, in the in the only 30 or so seconds or whatever that uh, Matthew has uh, allotted left for us, 
Um, Elysio wrote in on Instagram, I watched a cookbook talk this morning with the Mets Associate Chief Librarian, Tony White, and he had a very high praise for liquid intelligence. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate anyone that either likes the book or uses it to separate hot and cold foods like Nastasia does. Uh, I'm also a special collections librarian in Toronto and love classics in the field. My favorite books in our collection are uh, Scapi's Opera, which is the opera of Bartolomeo uh, Scapi from 1570. Uh, and it's, uh, I've never read it. You ever read this, read that book, Stas, when you're doing your Italian stuff? It was like, uh, so the, the English translation was done, and I believe this guy's also Canadian, although I'm not sure, by Terence Scully, who's one of the uh, greatest yeah, ever scholars of um, late medieval um, cookery. Well, everyone's scared. Uh, I forget the name of Scully's, what, like, Scully's academic book. Everyone's I have scared several of them, but Terence Scully is the want. translator of this book. And I don't know anymore because it's been, you know, well over a decade since I last seriously studied these things. But at the time, he was like Dave. the scholar. So I'm sure no like, one's, he's still watching. No one's respected. stopping you, Dave. Um, Everyone's so scared I've of never you. read uh, his translation of it, but I will uh, look into See? it. I'm sure you have the original because, you know, you're the special collections uh, librarian in Toronto. And your other favorite is Norman Douglas's Venus in the Kitchen. Now, I did not know Venus in the Kitchen, uh, but uh, it's available in uh, paperback now. Uh, they did a 2003 reprint in paperback, and you can get that on the Amazon for about four and a half bucks. Uh, and it was published in 1952, and it's apparently like lists of crazy aphrodisiacs and weird things that that are like uh, you know oysters, classic stuff, but like bulls test pie of bulls testicles. Uh, I'm not going to even get into some of the other some of the other things, but like historical lists of crazy. Um, crazy kind of aphrodisiac stuff. So eventually we'll, we'll, we'll get that. And in, in fact, the classics in the field that we're going to do today was a book that I did not know. Do I have time to do the classics in the field? What does that mean? Matthew's either going to turn us off or not. You can open your window. and Stas, you can open your window and let the birds chirp. Nastasia, we're starting. The reason we were the oh 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 the reason we were talking about air conditioning at the beginning of the show was because Nastasia had her window open and you could hear nothing but these freaking birds chirping, like some sort of like freaking Mary Poppins thing with birds going around her head. Just, just, just do it quick. All right, John Literate Mush is the handle. Recommended. Uh, oh, classics in the field. Yeah. Right, Re recommended uh, and pronounce <laughs> yeah. his name. In English, it would be Raymond Oliver. Pronounce it, John. Raymond Oliver. Oh my God, so sick. You always need to have a, 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 Frank, a French, a, a Francophone uh, sitting around. So it's a book called uh, La Cuisine. And if you, you can picture yeah, this book. Love it. The English version of the book. It was first published in France in, uh, in, in 1967. And it, it was published in 1969 in English and the English, the American cover, the English cover of it, the La Cuisine is written in that Mary Tyler Moore font. Can you guys picture that Mary Tyler Moore font? You don't, yep. what? That weird blocky, yes. like sans serif, like, so it's printed. And then the top of it is like a hyper close up of his face. So for those of you that like know us, like what we'll do is you'll send us a picture and we'll look at like a person's face. Like I'll look at this, there'll be a party. Let's say there's a party, right? And there's like 30 people and they all get together and they take a picture and I'll look and this, and everyone's smiling except Nastasia. So what I'll do is, is I'll go to the Nastasia's picture and then I'll zoom in and take a screenshot of that. And then I'll zoom in further and zoom in further until it's basically just like 
like the dead look in her eye as the picture that we send around on on uh, on, on our text messages. True or false does. Yeah. And she'll do it to me, like when I, when someone says something to me that horrifies me, but like no one who doesn't know me knows I'm horrified because they can't read the look on my face because I always have a smile. But Nastasia can tell the difference between the horrified smile and the real smile. Anyway, so she'll just send me the horrified smile, right, Saz? Yeah. So anyway, the, like the cover of this book is is like Mary Tyler Moore, La Cuisine, and then just a super close up of his face, just like his eyeballs and his mouth with this kind of like stern look on it. So from the minute I saw this book, I realized that this was probably going to be a classic that uh, John had turned me on to. John, who is literate mush, not our John. And then if you look up this guy, Raymond Oliver, he was born in 1909 uh, and he had kind of a crazy life during World War II. He, uh, he you know, fled, uh, I think he fled France to Switzerland and was joined a resistance cell and like, you know, uh, helped allied uh, downed, uh, you know, um, pilots, all this other stuff, all kinds of cool stuff. After the war, buys a, a very famous uh, restaurant that's been around since the uh, 1700s called, uh, well, how do you pronounce it? Le, Le Grand Vifor. How do you pronounce that crap, John? Give me, give me the Grand Vifor in French. Le Grand Vifor. Oh Vifour. my God, I love it. Anyway, so he gets this and then is, uh, it, at the time, wasn't three stars. He brings it up, gets like the third star. And so like this guy is at the top of his game. He is, he also interestingly hated uh, Nouvelle Cuisine. So after World War II, there was this kind of revolution in French cooking, Nouvelle Cuisine. Uh, and it was kind of displacing what was kind of Escoffier's like classic cuisine at the time. Uh, and so he was this old school, old guard, like kind of a uh, like classic cuisine guy. Didn't like Nouvelle Cuisine, at the, but at the top of his game, three stars, had a TV show and he writes this book that I can't believe I didn't already know about. And it's got some crazy stuff, especially kind of crazy sexism, that weird kind of sexism where he thinks he's being nice. Like, for instance, he doesn't believe that uh, men can set the table or do decoration properly because we'll just mess it up. That's like that kind of like weird that weird sexism anyway uh it's full of that but the beginning of the book is and and the photos are amazing so he hires like all of these as he says quote unquote hostesses who he thinks are really good uh around europe to set up their tables and so there's all these crazy 60s table settings in full color that he has which are just a joy to look at these kind of crazinesses and also he has lots of um like awesome black and white pictures. Like remember before when I was talking about classics in the field, I was talking about the uh, River Cottage cookbook and how there was a, uh, a picture of uh, a pig in it and they had drawn uh, the cuts of the pig on this pig. Now that picture was awesome because uh, it was a pig just out like in a meadow, in a field with the lines uh, drawn in it. But of course, my man, uh, Raymond Oliver, has uh, the same thing, but in a more kind of staid fashion. So the pictures are amazing. Like the way he cuts up live cows with uh, images of their cuts is amazing. But if you want it for nothing else, you're going to get this book for the polemic introduction. Now, the introduction alone is like uh, when I got the book first, I read the entire thing to uh, my family in kind of a stentorian voice. I don't have time to do that, but I'm going to give you some choice some choice nuggets. Now, in case they cut me off, I'm going to give you this one first because uh, I love... Now, this is very anti-modern, right? But it's hilarious coming from an old school French chef. If you ever met any old school French chefs, you'd know what I mean. 
There is no such thing as the art of fixing leftovers. There are only tricks and often a great deal of indulgence on the part of the guests. Once again, we are on the fringe of gastronomy. By what outward signs may we judge this period of transition? So he's like railing against like, like the art of the leftovers. So anti-modern, right guys? Now that everyone's focused on trying to use leftovers, he's like, there is no art of the leftover, only tricks. And then he says, uh, what does he say? He goes, it is a widely held misconception that our ancestors were in their day incomparable gastronomes. This deeply rooted error has also made them all into authentic gargantuas. By gargantua, he's uh, referencing the hero of the Rabelais gargant gargantua and panting rule. Uh, but, so he's like, he goes in as kind of an anti-nouvelle anti cuisine, kind of like, like a person trying to uphold the classics. But then at the same time, is like people in the past sucked. I love it. I just love the, like the screaming. And then he goes... He talks about uh, making sure that your, uh, that, that your environment is nice when you're, when you're eating. He goes, cooking, divested of its decor, seems mutilated or reduced. Such settings, i.e. where you're eating, uh, place settings and whatnot, such settings may seem highly artificial, yet they are no less indispensable to the culinary art of which they are, moreover, an aspect. And here's where, here's where uh, this is like, should I give a little bit of the sexism or no? Whatever you go out on, this is this is the one. Oh, jeez! If you want to do sexism, I don't fine. want to go out on the sexism. Let me see what I can. Uh, let me see. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, nah, 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 nah. Now you're killing me. You're killing me. You're killing me. He has the part where he he describes the reason that John sent it to me was no, no. Do not cheat in another one. Is this the one? Oh uh, no! Now, now you're killing me. You're killing me. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. There. Let me see. You're killing me. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. No, no. There's just there's too much. There's too many words of wisdom. I guess. Uh, it all sounds like people should go out and buy the book. They should definitely buy this classic in the field. But I have so many things that are that are. All right, I'll leave this just because it fits with modern day uh, thinking, even though it's not what I wanted to talk about. He and 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 Matthew won't let me. Uh, He's Matthew now that I'm mad. He won't let me. Yeah, injured. I can tell. Now yeah. I've upset him and I'm Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> the photograph indicating the position of the hands, the shape of the knife, the place to stick in the fork, and a thousand other details becomes an absolute necessity. For in cooking, the technical lecture, which is not accompanied by a demonstration, is totally useless. Now remember, this is relatively not, you know, not every book back in the day had photographs, like Ascoffier had no photographs. Color, with its precision, has completely changed the uses of photography. Photographs have now become suggestive and appetizing. If one may say that, they are in any case favorable to inspiration. So a pre-love of the color photograph for Instagram and a reminder, as I've always said, don't listen to what the chef says, look at their hands. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.